0: This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Lee
1: Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast, the show where I get to sit down one-on-one with some of the most amazing founders and CEOs to talk about their journeys and climbing to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are today. This is episode 123, and today I sat down with Matt Feldman, the founder and CEO of Moku Foods, to hear how he partnered with a Michelin chef to turn king oyster mushrooms into a delicious
0: alternative beef jerky. We talked about his childhood growing up in Hawaii, why he joined a vegan meetup in San Francisco, how he earned over 1 million views on YouTube, and how he's raised over $4 million for Moku Foods. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click
1: subscribe, tell your friends and check us out on stairway to Matt, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Lee. Excited to be on here.
1: I'm so excited. I'm really, really excited. I know you guys have been around since what, like kind of 2020 time?
2: We launched in early 2021. So about a year and a half.
1: But I recently just discovered you. So you guys are like super new for me. And now I'm really, really stoked. I love having more of like the early stage kind of startups, especially when it's food, because then I get to try it. And I've been like snacking on all the jerky, (laughs) like I have three different flavors here. But before I go into that, let's just tell the audience, what is Moku?
2: Yeah. So Moku is a mushroom jerky. And we worked with the Michelin chef to turn king oyster mushrooms into a delicious tender jerky. That looks and tastes like beef.
1: King oyster mushrooms. I've never even heard of that. What's the difference between that and the mushrooms I'm buying at the store?
2: Um, so king oyster, they're also called, called king trumpet mushrooms. They're very large, very large stem. They're, they sell them at grocery stores, but they're often sold also at Asian restaurants. Mm. And they have a very meaty stem. So it's a great meat substitute.
1: So are you using only the stem?
2: Um, we're also using the cap as well.
1: I mean, these... It's kind of crazy because when you first open it up and you're like, I know these are mushrooms, these are mushrooms. They don't look like mushrooms (laughs) and they definitely don't taste like mushrooms. It tastes so much like the real thing. Even the texture is so real. And then I'm like, this is a mushroom. No, it's not. Yes, it is. (laughs) Really? It's crazy.
2: We have a lot of customers who do not eat any mushrooms and they despise mushrooms, Mm -hmm. but they've tried moku and it's the only mushrooms i'll eat because it really does not taste anything like mushrooms
1: nothing like a mushroom nothing i'm Mm -hmm. eating it right now they're so good the sweet and spicy is my favorite Mm -hmm. and then i feel like once you have those and you've got that spice in your mouth and you try to have the hawaiian teriyaki one you almost don't really taste it because the spice is so (laughs) still there yeah anyways these are amazing six grams of protein nine grams of fiber I'm excited to hear your story. These are gluten free, soy free, vegan, non GMO. The, print, the uh, packaging and branding is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sending these over. They're really
2: of good. Of course. My pleasure. They're really
1: good. You guys are so, how'd you get this so accurate? Is what I'm, maybe we're going to save that question. Let's start from the very beginning.
2: Okay. You're yeah.
1: from Hawaii. Tell mm-hmm. us what it was like to grow up in Hawaii.
2: It was amazing. A lot of outdoor activities. My family was very into sports so I played all the sports baseball soccer basketball football ended up you know playing basketball mostly in high school and college but also surfed and hiked and gardened and pretty much lived my entire childhood outdoors which most people do in Hawaii and you know we're blessed with beautiful weather and and all that but I think growing up in Hawaii you know we have limited natural resources so you know we're we have more of a responsibility to take care of the land and really be conscious about our individual decisions and how they affect both the island and the planet. So from an early age, I was always very conscious and passionate about sustainability. And I knew when I was, when I would get older, I would start a business centered around sustainability or the environment somehow.
1: How did you know that as a kid, or
2: that was just like a dream? I just knew that I was passionate about sustainability. And And what does that mean?
1: like when you were um, a kid, how did how were you showing your friends and your family that that's something you were into? Were you like I think recycling like, a lot? Like
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just like irked me like seeing like people throwing recyclables in the trash and littering and the oceans getting poisoned and all that. And I just had like that fire in me that I wanted to do something better for the planet, but I had no idea what it would be. And then fast forward, uh, went to college and. In New York city, played basketball out there, studied finance, ended up, uh, actually had a coffee company out there with, uh, um, uh, another student and we, we distributed organic custom blended coffee from South America to a bunch of restaurants and cafes around New York city. So I got a taste for the food and beverage industry back in college, but after college, I moved to Silicon Valley to work in tech, which I did for five years and always, I honestly didn't want to work for any company after college, but I didn't have an idea that would, you know, take me to the next level out of college. So I was like, Do you know what? It, it doesn't hurt to work for a company, learn skills, build a network and save money, which is super important if you want to start a business. So I did all of those things and was just kind of waiting, keeping my eyes open for, you know, an idea that would come around and allow me to quit my job and, and run after it.
1: What were you, what was it like? I mean, did you, was your, one of your parents, like an entrepreneur, like what gave you this idea after college that you didn't want to work for someone
2: else? I always had the entrepreneurial spirit. My mom was an entrepreneur and from an early age, I knew that I wanted to be running my own businesses.
1: What's your mom's business?
2: She had a, um, uh, sports apparel company for women like leotards back in the day. Yeah.
1: That's cool. So you kind of saw her running her own business and you're like, that's something that I want to do.
2: I want to be like, Yeah, she was doing it with three kids, like just getting after it. So yeah, it was, it was in my blood.
1: Definitely. And looking back, you know, when you were a kid, what were some of those entrepreneurial things that you did?
2: So in high school, I started a company called book Zingo, which in our high school, we had to buy books And then when you sell them back, you make next to nothing. So we started a business with four other people where it was almost like a Craigslist, but centered around each school. So you go on the website, you type in your school, then there's like a messaging system that you can buy and sell books amongst students. It got really popular in Hawaii amongst high schools and colleges. And then all of us went to college and we couldn't figure out how to like run it.
1: From New York City.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like it was tough because we all had, you know, extracurriculars. I was playing basketball in college. So, we didn't, we weren't really able to scale it, but it was like a, a really fun business to get off the ground in Hawaii.
1: That's awesome. So, you yeah. definitely had the bug, it was in your blood. And then you were also doing it in high school. And so, you know, where did you get the idea then for Moku?
2: So, in 2018, I went vegan after watching a couple of documentaries on Netflix.
1: Which ones? I did too. I it wasn't, <laughs> I mean, it was a couple of years before that. But yeah, I, all those documentaries turned me into, more of a, yeah, vegan, vegetarian. So
2: I watched uh, cowspiracy first and then what mm-hmm. the health. And then I was like, okay, let me try going vegan for two weeks and just see how I feel. And yeah. I did that. And it was a game changer for me. It, it doesn't work for everyone, but for me, I felt better physically, mentally, spiritually, it just all kind of clicked. So from then I, I didn't really know any other vegans. I was living in the Bay area And so I started a vegan meetup in San Francisco. And the the point of that was really just to meet other people, get educated on it, and then also to educate anyone that wanted to learn more about it and and talk to people and network. So I grew that to about 80 people while I was, this is still while I was working in tech. And then while I was there, during the meetups, I would have everyone bring a vegan snack, something that they can make. And for me, you know, knowing that I couldn't bring like mushroom jerky, I was like, I might as well try and make some, sorry, beef jerky. I I was like, I might as well make some mushroom jerky, see how it turns out.
1: But why mushrooms? Like all of a sudden you just, you had that idea. Like I'm instead of beef, I'm going to bring mushroom jerky.
2: I've always loved mushrooms. And I knew that like, if you cook them in the right way, they can taste very meaty. So I looked up a recipe online and, you know, sliced up portabellas, marinated them overnight and then dehydrated them and brought them to the meetup and people really liked them. So I was like, you know what, I might as well do more research on the jerky category and see if this has any legs. So from then I did a bunch of research and noticed that the beef jerky and meat snacks category in the U S was approaching $4 billion back in 2018. And the vegan jerky was next to nothing.
1: Well, cause there wasn't any, right? Like, I don't know what other, where, what other brands are there? None. There was a
2: soy jerky called Louisville, but oh. Similar to like the alternative milks, like people were leaning off of soy. So I didn't want to make it with soy. And I saw what, you know, impossible beyond were doing back then and all of the alternative milks, and they were approaching 10% of the animal counterpart market and, you know, jerky was nothing. So I just decided to go for it. And I told myself, I'm going to keep working and saving money until I get to a point where I can quit.
1: What flavors did you make when you brought it to that first meetup? Like, what was the seasoning? Like, what did you do? Was that kind of like an original one or the Hawaiian teriyaki?
2: It was actually a um, maple. It was like a maple pineapple or something weird like that. <laughs> Super
0: weird. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. How'd it go? Did people or like, like maple it? Maple
2: ginger. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, it was good. But I literally like had just smack. like a craft. <laughs> bag and like a a very cheap label made it was very like grassroots
1: but what was the reaction did you feel like did did they like all were they all gone did people not really like it
2: no people really liked it but the vegan crowd is very easy to please because especially back then there weren't many options so i definitely knew that like okay just because these folks like it doesn't mean everyone's gonna like it
1: right give it to a real beef jerky eater and see what happens right
2: yeah so (laughs) I started selling it just in some stores under the table, just literally was making it from my house in the Bay Area and then literally just going to store owners and just saying, hey, do you want to sell this jerky? And some of them did. But I knew that I needed one to network and just learn how to start a food company. And secondly, quickly after that, I learned that I needed to hire a product developer or chef to make a commercialized version of this or develop something that's commercial. And then eventually make it in a, you know, whether it's a commercial kitchen or a a co-manufacturer.
1: You evidently found like two Michelin star chefs, right? Like to help make this recipe or to get this formula created. What was it like trying to find them, ask them to do this? Like what was the process in, in securing those two?
2: Yeah. So I knew that I needed to network like crazy and just learn, learn, learn. So I literally reached out to, any founders in the Bay area that I can get coffee with. And all I was trying to do was learn and get them on, you know, get coffee dates or 10 minute calls and just pick their brain. And I did that and met a lot of people. And through that, those meetings, I got connected to even more people. And one of the people I got connected to was the former head of product development and R and D at just, which makes the just egg and just Mayo. Really what I was trying to get from him was his insight on these different development firms that I could work with to commercialize my product and take it to the next level. So I got on a call with him. I was like, hey, I would love to take you out to lunch and just pick your brain. And this guy is a Michelin chef, food scientist, one of the most talented developers in the country. So I had lunch with him and I was like, hey, taste, taste this jerky. Let me know what you think. I have these three firms that I'm thinking about hiring. Would love to get your thoughts. And he's like, this is really good you know, I'm about to leave the company. I can just work with you and develop this for you. And my eyes lit up. I was like, no way. He's like, yeah, like I have a drop. (laughs) Like I'm really good with mushrooms. I I'm good with like meat alternatives, you know, at just there, they were making a a cell-based chicken nugget. So he was the perfect fit. And I was like, done, let's do it. So I worked with him, Thomas for about eight months. And this was in between him, you know, he, he had some in-between time before he started his own company. So I knew that going in. So this wasn't going to be my co-founder or anything, but I got eight months of his time and he developed an unbelievable product. It was actually like a bacon. It wasn't even a jerky. So our initial product was called Moku bacon jerky. It literally tasted like bacon, but I wasn't trying to go after the bacon market. Um, I knew I wanted to do jerky to start. So, you know, with that product, we ended up after Thomas, you know, started his other uh, gig, we, hired another firm called... And when I say we, I brought on a business partner named Melissa Ficina, who owns an operations firm. And she had seen my early deck and wanted to get involved. So I brought her on. And we realized that we had a, an amazing product and we were able to raise some capital early on from it, just to, basically an idea and a prototype. But we knew that we had to get it into a jerky form and commercialize it so that a big manufacturer can easily make thousands of units. So... That's when we found a group called Pilot RD and they're in the Bay area. They're a development firm and the guy who runs it, his name is Ali Buzari and he's also a Michelin chef, one of the most talented developers. So hired him and he's the one who kind of took our original recipe and kind of changed it so that, you know, it would be commercially viable.
1: That's incredible. And I'm still like thinking back to I mean, how long did it take for you if at all any time? Cause it sounds like you didn't have any pause or res- like, you just like, yep, yeah, I'm mushrooms. I'm going to use mushrooms to do this. Like, I I'm just so shocked. Like how and why, I guess you just had so much experience with mushrooms from Hawaii or something like
2: not, not a ton. I mean, I always liked mushrooms, but this was one of those weird things where I don't even remember making the decision to quit my job and do Moku. It was so natural and go with the flow that like, it was almost like I woke up and I was like mushroom jerky. Like I have to do this.
1: Right. That's what it sounds like. And I'm like, this, this is crazy. There's gotta be something more like, did you wake up and just have a dream about it? Like what it, What was it that struck you to think, or you're, you're just saying you didn't think you were just like, I'm, it just makes sense. I'm going to do mushroom jerky.
2: It was definitely one of those intuitive moments where like, I just knew I had to do it and I don't have any like research or anything to back up why I decided to do it.
1: Or choose mushrooms. Like you don't have any idea why you chose mushrooms specifically.
2: So I I was learning more and more about mushrooms and like they were showing up in the news and, and magazines. And I knew that one, they were very sustainable. And there actually was, I did visit a mushroom farm in Hawaii that makes portobello mushrooms. And it was incredible. It was eye opening, And I saw like, you know, how sustainable sustainably they're made, how little, you know, resources they take up. And then when cooked in the right way, they can really taste like meat. And I think knowing those two, I was like, this is the perfect ingredient. I don't want to use soy. I don't want to use, you know, any of those fake meats or chemicals or anything like high saturated fat oils. I wanted something whole and it was just the perfect ingredient.
1: Nice. So you definitely have had some experiences, including visiting that mushroom farm, kind of already knowing that it's a very sustainable product to make. All these things, I think, just added up where it just clicked instead of thinking too much or having to research too much about it.
2: Yeah. I think, I think the mushrooms conditioned me to choose them. Let's go yeah. that Yeah.
1: <laughs> something's going on here. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. So after you, you know, started working on the um, R and D process and kind of what was it like? How many samples did you have to try of this mushroom jerky before you were like, this is the one we're going to do this. And then did you launch with all three flavors or did you only have one, you know, can you tell us kind of how that went?
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll back up a little bit because, it wasn't all just smooth sailing. You know, after we had our initial prototype, I brought on Melissa. I was able to raise some capital from amazing founders, like the founder, one of, one of the founders of Thrive Market, Casper Mattresses, Soylent. And I got all these people on board and many more that just believed in myself and Melissa and, and the vision and they loved the product. But at that point, I still didn't have a way to make it at scale. And I was pretty desperate to find a a manufacturer because most of the beef jerky manufacturers didn't want to work with something that wasn't meat-based. So I ended up finding this manufacturer in Southern California, and I thought it was a good fit. We ran a trial there, like a very small benchtop trial, and it turned out great. So then we made a big order, and then we found out afterwards that they never had the even facility to make it. It was just... It Smoking was really mirrors? Bad. Smoking mirrors, completely.
1: Oh, that's and terrifying.
2: Yeah. So we put in so much, so much resources and time and effort there. And then we had to back out and completely change directions. And if you're, if you're new to the food industry, moving manufacturers or going into a new one takes at least a year. It's just, you know, everything moves very slow in food. And I came from a tech background where everything was very quickly. So yeah. I didn't have the patience to wait. And there's a lot I of urgency.
1: To, time is money. Let's go. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. So I'll give a quick story, actually, you know, after we quote unquote tried to do our first production run at this facility, we had told everyone on social media, all of our investors that we were launching in you know two weeks or so. And they sent the product. Like I, I remember picking up the product from their attempt to make it. And I, I just had boxes of boxes and boxes in my car. And I was driving them to the fulfillment center in California. And the plan was to drop them off. And these would go out to our customers on our website, on Amazon, all that. We had gotten that all set up and we were like creating some buzz on social media. People were ready for us to launch. This was back in 2019 before the pandemic, before everything. And that weekend, this was a Friday. I had like a, basically like a festival slash Um, event I was going to in um, Mexico, I was driving down. So I was just really excited to like, get my product to the fulfillment center, drive to Mexico, have a great time and relax. And just like, all right, finally, like I'm those two, two years of pre pre pre-launch is over. I'm going to be across the finish line to stage zero and like start there. So I get to the fulfillment center. I open a box and granted we had done a trial there, a small trial and the product tasted amazing. So I opened the box. I'm like, do you know what? And I, I, I wasn't even going to do this at first, but I was like, I might as well try a bag because I need to know how this tastes. So I open up a bag, I put it in my mouth and I'm like, what the F <gasps> like, this is no. not how it's supposed to taste. Oh, so I'm like, no. maybe, maybe like, maybe I'm just tripping. Like, let me give a bag to one of the workers. So I gave it to one of the workers and he like spit it out. He's like, this is awful. <gasps> oh, and then God. like, I was just like, my stomach just like hurt. Like, how like, did that what?
1: even happen? Yeah.
2: Like, how did this happen? What do I do? So I called the the manufacturer and they're like, no, like we made it exactly how you told us like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm like, course. no, this is not how it's supposed to be done. So then I called Melissa, my co-founder. And I was like, there's no way we can sell this product. We have thousands of bags here. Like, what do I do? And she's like, call it off. Like we, we can't launch with a bad product. So it was, it was disheartening. Like I just remember just taking a deep breath and being like, wow, like this might be it. Got gone all this way to launch a a week before launch and shit just hits the fan. So
1: did you ever figure out what happened?
2: Yeah, they didn't have the they didn't have the equipment like they were just they were just faking it, basically.
1: Wait, this is another smoke and mirrors situation?
2: No, this is the same one. This is how it ended. It ended that day, tossed all the product, called off our launch, told our investors what happened. And then we put our heads down looking for another manufacturer. And we found one and got integrated about a year later.
1: A year later. So it took a whole year.
2: It takes so long because our jerky is made differently than beef jerky. It's just a different process. So we had to like put up machinery and this new manufacturing facility. We had to do a bunch of trials and and these, these folks move very slowly because they don't need clients, you know? So it's everything's on their time. So anyway, That was like one of the first pitfalls and shock to my system.
1: You had to buy the machinery for them?
2: Yeah, some of it. Some of it.
1: That's something I feel like a lot of founders don't talk about, having to buy the machinery. Or I guess I'm sure you questioned, and maybe you're working towards this, is just doing vertically integrated, like doing it yourself and running the manufacturing process on your own.
2: Yeah, it's definitely something that a lot of startups do. You definitely need a lot of capital for that. But if your product is very difficult to make in a you know, commercial co-manufacturer, then you can, you're forced to. For us, like, we, we didn't want to take on all of that risk and all of that capital. So we did find someone who could make it, but it required investment on our side for um, certain machinery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So a whole year goes by, at least you found a new manufacturer and you worked with them to get rolling, but your launch was basically delayed an entire year, it sounds like.
2: Well, not only that. So yeah, so we were going to launch in early 2019, it got delayed. And then we were going to launch a year later in early 2020 and then COVID hit. And we weren't like exactly... Ready just then because we hit a bunch of like ingredient supply delays. Everything just like kind of stopped for a second with our like suppliers and everything. But we also didn't want to launch during a global pandemic when like people were trying to survive and figure out w- how they're going to live the next day. You know what I'm saying? So we wanted to launch during a time where people would be excited. So we delayed again. And but it was a blessing in disguise because there was actually a lot of work that needed to be done. You know, on the back end with the team, with branding, all that. So it gave us about eight months to really set it up. And during that time, I moved back to Hawaii, which I was living in California before that. But it gave me time to just like really work on everything and get everything perfect so that once COVID was a little better, then we can launch. So that's what we did. And we waited until uh, January 2021 to launch.
1: Amazing. So that's why I feel like you guys were kind of new. <laughs> it's been about a year i guess yeah that's awesome and so you're in hawaii now still
2: i'm not i had recently moved back to los angeles so i live in venice beach
1: oh nice awesome i'm in la and so when did you move back so you were in hawaii for just basically a year or two
2: yeah two years during the pandemic and i moved back uh this february so 2022
1: welcome back
2: Thank you. It's great to be out here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sure it wasn't so bad to be in Hawaii. Like, I don't feel bad for you. Actually. You know, a lot of people, I have told their stories before on the show of like, Oh, I went home. I went home to Washington state or I went home to, you know, if I went home, it'd be to Delaware. Right. So it's, you know, going back home to Hawaii, it's like, Oh, you know, I don't feel bad for you at all this. There's no No, feelings of failure with that one. You're (laughs) like in paradise.
2: Yeah, it's a it was a great place to be during the pandemic because you can still do a bunch of stuff outdoors, but like running the running a compa- a new company from Hawaii is a little isolating and lonely because there's not many other entrepreneurs doing similar things. So, being here in LA, there's just so many founders and people in the industry that I definitely am more motivated and get more work done here.
1: And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors.
0: Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for
1: you. Now let's get back to the show. So you've raised around $4 million in venture funding. What was it like trying to fundraise? What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to raise capital?
2: Yeah. So I'll say in general, when I started this company, I knew nothing about the food industry or even starting my like a, a venture-backed company. So I was very optimistic because I didn't know what I didn't know. And some people would be like, oh, it's really, really hard to raise money, or it's really hard to start a food business for all these reasons. But I was like, no, like I'm pretty sure you just come up with a good formula, you find a co-packer, and then you just get it into stores, and then you're rich. And that's not how it works at all. There are so many things in between. And just because you get into stores doesn't really mean anything. You have to have consistent flow through, basically. But anyway... Again, I didn't know how to raise money. So I brought on an advisor, a guy named Steven, who was worked in the venture space and, you know, sold him on the, on the product and the vision. And he opened up his network to me. And I would say like, naturally, like one of my skills is just being good with people and getting people to like me and and like what I'm doing and believe in me. So I think naturally I was like a decent fundraiser, even though I had no idea like how to do it exactly. And I've learned a lot as we go. And I can share some tips later on. But I mean, I pitched to over 130 investors in 2019 through 2020. And most of them rejected us and didn't want to invest. So, but I had worked in sales before that in tech. So I I was used to that. Rejection was nothing new. Um, I would try to learn from every single meeting and every meeting I I really treated like that was going to be the one. It's almost like you're you're swinging for a home run every time, but you know that you're probably not going to hit it, you know? (laughs) But you have Uh, to go
1: in so freaking optimistic, right? It's like, you can't go in there being like, well, they'll probably say no, but here we go. Like you kind of have to be like, they're going to say yes. There's no reason for them to say no, we're going to do this. And then you do the pitch and then you leave and then you're like, yeah, they'll probably say no. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And they never tell you, they never tell you exactly why they always say, this is really cool. We're very interested. Like let's check in in a week or whatever. And then a week or two goes by you check in and they're like yeah we're going to pass it's a little too early for us and i got that a lot and i was like interesting so why did you i just thought in my head why did you take the meeting with me if it was too early you knew what stage i was at but that's just a common you know rejection statement that uh, vcs give and it's it's all good because you know they they take they want to take every meeting but they're going to invest in you know maybe 1% of them so it's a numbers game and you have to keep going until you find the right fit and for us I kept going. Steven and I actually did a trip to New York City in 2019. And we met with about 30 investors and VCs. And the, the, the great part about it is even though a lot say no, if they like you and like the product, they're, they're probably going to open you up to their network and maybe introduce you to a friend of theirs or another VC, whatever. So if you do it enough and you, and you really do believe that your product can make it, then you're going to get the right person or people in. So uh, we kept doing it. And I had gotten... My strategy was I need leverage for every investor meeting I get. So I got successful founders in first. So I got the founder of Thrive Market in. I got the founder of Casper sold. I got Soylent, Juneshine, a couple others, and then put those in my pitch deck. And you know, the first thing I would tell the VC was, yeah, the founder of Casper and Thrive Market are both invested. They love the product. And that little bit of leverage helps because no VC wants to be the first big player in and the hard, the first one is the hardest to get. So luckily like, you know, my co-founder Melissa was already connected to a number of VCs and having her on board, people, you know, trusted us, trusted the business more. So we were able to land like our first big check and then from there we kind of just clawed at it until we, you know, raised the first 1.8 million, which was our first round.
1: That's awesome. And it is interesting when, you know, I think founders like you experienced experience very similarly when they do so many pitches and then they get told, Oh, you're too early. You're too early. I always try to tell founders to ask these investors, like what stages they invest in and also what percentage of their portfolio are actually your stage, right? <laughs> Cause if, that will at least help you as a founder kind of ballpark, like the chances, right? If, if it's actually a pre-seed fund, Big chance that this could be a check coming your way for this kind of like maybe a pre-seed round, right? But if they're actually doing mostly Series A and they write maybe one check a year to a really early stage company, then <laughs> I think then it's like nice treat to those know. as
2: practice pitches, basically. Totally,
1: exactly. I think it also. I wish that there would be more candid conversations between VCs and founders. But unfortunately, I think it's our job as founders to speak up and ask the right questions. You know, I think a lot of times founders are like, oh, they ask me all the questions and then I answer and I answer and I pitch and I do and I do this and I do that. And then I just wait and pray that they'll say yes, when really we're interviewing them as well. And we should have our stack of questions even before we pitch.
2: Yeah, I mean, the truth is that these investments these vcs they want to really get to know the founders over time so like they they all take the early stage meetings because they want to plant the seed get to know the founders stay in touch with you and then invest a year later they won't tell you that because it might you know draw some founders back but that's the reality
1: and it's good for the founder i mean that's how you fundraise essentially you, like you have to take those meetings i think setting expectations is one thing right so when you know you're going into a pitch and it's probably not going to be a fit for that round that you're raising you'll know but it's a great opportunity to m- maintain that relationship over time because when you send them investor updates like every month for the next year and you're like oh by the way we're we're going out for a seed or series a they're in, you don't have, it's like there, you don't really have to go through this like six month process fundraising. Cause you've already built all those relationships. So it's good to be pitching as much as you can.
2: A hundred percent. You, you really have to look at every call. Like you hope it works the first time, but if it doesn't at least sell them on yourself so that they like you enough and like the product enough to maybe recommend you to someone or keep, you know, keep your name in mind. So that when they, you know, do talk to someone that might invest in a company like this, they'll refer you. And if you take enough meetings, you're going to get, you know, introduced to their network and it's a spiral effect. So it does take a lot and you have to really be level headed and tough because you're going to get 99 no's and that one yes could change everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. I remember fundraising for my own startup and, you know, an investor would say something like, not a great fit for now, but keep us posted on your progress. And I'm like, yeah, sure. You don't give a F about my progress. You know, you're like so angry. You wanted them to invest. And they said no, but in a nice way, but no, really, when they say, keep us um, updated on your progress, that is like key for send them your, you know, a slimmed version potentially of your investor updates to actually keep them updated with your progress, because that's the open door for the next round.
2: Yeah. And there's so many tips that I've learned with fundraising. Like one, like no investor wants to be the first one in and you, you also don't never want to lie to investors, but there's a gray area where you want to, you know, create scarcity and create momentum urgency. Exactly. So you have to phrase things certain uh, in a certain way where like the round is going to close in two weeks. So if you want to come in, let me know. And then what usually happens is you get a lot of people who are like, I'm very interested, you know, keep, send me this, like send me the terms, whatever. And then, then they kind of go off the map and then you have to reel them back in, but you don't want to be too desperate. You don't want to send them too many emails. So what I found works really good is, you know, if you have a hard time getting hearing from an investor, you just draw the line in the sand and you say, Hey, we're closing the round on July 15th. Please let me know by Wednesday, July 1st, whether you're in or out. And then you hold them to that. And if they don't respond to you, then they're out. You don't, you don't keep asking after that.
1: Totally. You have to put a date on it. I would say something like when I was fundraising, I'd say, would you be able to sign by this date and fund by this date, which is only a few days, maybe a week apart, right? Of we're getting all the investors to sign and fund on these dates. Do they work for you? And then you'll know right away. What else have you learned? What are some other challenges that you've faced? Obviously the manufacturing one is a really big one what are some other things that you've learned or have had to overcome in getting the business to where it is? I know you guys are still early, but how's it been going?
2: Yeah. You know, one thing that I've learned the hard way is developing. So when you, when you have an idea and a product, you know, what we did was I hired amazing chefs and product developers, but it started off as just like a a kitchen product. And then we had to take that to another product developer to make it commercial. And Knowing what I know now, I would any new company or or product I would do, I would develop it for scale on day one. So whether you're working with a co-manufacturer and they have a development team or you hire a development team, make sure that what you're paying for, what you're going to get can be replicated in a commercial setting on day one. That's very important because a benchtop kitchen formula prototype is completely different from a commercial prototype because they're you, they use different equipment and it can be a completely different process. So that's one thing developing for scale early on. Another thing I've learned, I brought on a co-founder, but she's more of a, she's not day to day. So, and, but she's been incredible for me as a mentor connections, all that, but I never really had a day-to-day co-founder and, you know, I, I kept my eyes open for one, but it just never happened. But It is really, really hard mentally to start a business. There's a lot of, there's definitely wins, but there's a lot of losses and being able to share that burden with someone else, I think is the main reason why I wanted a co-founder. But also, you know, I put in the first, let's say hundred K into the business, you know, like being able to split that with someone being able to share, you know, responsibilities and roles with someone else to get the product to market quicker. That would have been nice. So all in all, my biggest advice to founders or entrepreneurs is new entrepreneurs is like, if you don't have all, like, I I know some founders that do it all themselves and great. They get all the equity. They, it's great. But for me, I would only start another business with a co-founder or two.
1: Yeah. You know, I've been a solo founder, so (laughs) I would agree with you. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds great.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just not for me. I was able to get Moku to a point where now we can hire and we have board members and advisors and, you know, Melissa is still very active, but the early days and still today, it's it's tough. Like when you, when you hit roadblocks, it's very lonely. No one really understands what you're going through. So I would highly recommend people to be very careful about who they bring on, but bring someone on that's complimentary that you really know is going to be with you when it gets tough because you need that person to put in the same amount of energy as you or else it won't work. So that was like, those are the two big lessons that I have. And then another, I'll just throw out another like lesson or recommendation for new founders that are starting something from scratch. And, you know, in the early days, you you don't know if it's going to work. You have to be super optimistic and have your head in the clouds, especially when you're fundraising. Like you need to be convincing investors why this is going to be the next billion dollar company. Whether you actually believe that or not, you have to be thinking that way. But chances are like most, most startups don't work. So I think what some founders struggle with is they don't know when to, when to quit, you know, when to, cause no one likes to be a quitter, but at a certain point, like you, you might have to pack it up, you know? So I, I recommend, I didn't do this, but I learned this from other people is when you start set a date, set a time frame. I'm going to give this my all. I'm going to put this amount of money in for the next 12 months. And in 12 months from now, I'm going to sit down and reassess whether I should keep going or not. And that way, during those 12 months, you're not waking up thinking, am I crazy for even doing this? And that way you're going to allow yourself mentally to go after it 100%, not look back. And then after those 12 months or whatever timeframe you set, you can really assess whether it's a good idea to move forward. And you can set milestones or or targets that you would need to hit in those 12 months. But I think that mentally is just a good exercise because no one knows if their startup is in a good... like. Early on, you don't know if you're doing good or bad because you're still, you haven't gotten to post launch yet. So it's really tough sometimes to understand if, you know, you're, you should keep going or not.
1: And every day is a roller coaster. So if you choose the wrong day to think, "Hmm, maybe I should evaluate this, you know, and it's on the down day, you could make a bad decision. Whereas like the next day, some big news, some great thing could happen and you would have never known if you would have just if you quit too soon. So that's a really insightful thing to do, I think. Um, and advice. That's great advice to set kind of a goal for a time to reflect and, st- and just don't do it every night because you'll drive yourself crazy. You know, it's such a roller coaster. And also those milestones, of course, are really important. What were some early signs, you know, that you were like, this is working, I think. Like, what were some of those metrics?
2: I mean just seeing people's reactions early on from the prototype was definitely like the sign that was like I need to do this like this is going to work. And then I got invited to pitch on this show called Elevator Pitch from entrepreneur.com and got up to the judges and you know they all agreed to invest and like that was a, a pivotal moment just like giving me the confidence that like I'm on the right track. And that got like over a million views on YouTube and kind of put us on the map. This was all pre pre-launch. So that, you know, was definitely like, you know, helped me to have confidence that like this could work. I think the, the Forbes 30 under 30 was definitely a big, it, it wasn't like a revenue accomplishment or anything, but it was definitely a sign that like I'm onto something and I'm being acknowledged for something that I've done thus far. So I think that was definitely good. And it, and it helped me connect with a lot of other people. And then just getting big investors involved, I think was a nod to, uh, you know, our potential we're still very early on. We've, we've only sold online. I mean, we're in some stores and we're about to get into more, but for the first year and a half, almost we we've been selling all on our website, Amazon thrive market. So we've just been heads down, you know, and we, we, we have a lot of like influencers on social media posting, but we're not like out there, like at the shows and, you know, in stores yet. So we're, that's kind of the next phase.
1: Well, I'm excited to see you guys in, in stores. It's a really great product. It's It tastes amazing. Thank you for sharing. I'm curious real quick before we start to wrap things up, if you could change anything about your journey, what would you have changed?
2: I'm always a big fan of just like no regrets. Everything's a lesson. So I wouldn't have changed. But if I would, were to start over and do something else, uh, there are things that I would change. One, like I said, I would bring on one or two co-founders. And, you know, mushrooms are, are the future, but mushrooms are also very difficult because 90% of mushrooms are water. So that's definitely, that's why it took us so much resources and time and money to figure out how to make this at scale at a profitable, sustainable rate or, or margin. So it's, I would definitely look at margin and, and the ability to scale with something. We figured it out with Moku, but It was very difficult and mushrooms are very difficult. So I would probably look heavier into margin and, you know, produce something that I would know for a fact has high margin. We were able to get Moku there, but it took a lot of work. Yeah. Those are the main two things I would probably, I mean, I wouldn't change the mushroom part, but I would say the biggest one is just bringing on business partners.
1: Yeah. And it's tough to find, and it's tough to find people you can trust you know, you meet someone and you're like, yeah, this could be great, but it could be a nightmare, you know, like, cause you hear a lot of horror stories of uh, partnering with the wrong people.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: What advice do you have on finding the right partner? What do, what do you do to kind of validate that someone's the right partner for you?
2: Yeah. So first you have to take the time to really get to know them, know what excites them, know what irks them.
1: And how do you figure that out though? Do you send each other personality tests? Like, how do you figure that out?
2: You spend time with them. Lots of time. A lot of time. You go to lunch with them first, maybe. And then you take them to an event, see how they interact with people. And then you just ask questions. Like you really get to know them. It's almost like you're a dating exercise, you know? Um, And then after you feel like you have good energy with that person, then I recommend like coming up with a list of questions to ask them like, Where do they want to take this? If they, you know, also agree that they want to start a business with you, ask them like, where do you see this business going? How how long do you want to stay in this business? How many hours a week do you expect to work with this business? Like, what would really piss you off that I do? What doesn't annoy you? Like, really, it's almost like a personality test. A lot of questions, and also just like try to understand like what their outcome is because those all have to align. If if they want to you know, sell a business in two years and you plan to do it for five, that's not going to work out. So you really have to understand like what their end game is. You got, you got to understand their personality because you're going to be spending more time with this person than anybody in your life, even your partner. So, and your family. So you really have to know that the energy is aligned because if it's not, it'll be a short journey with them. And it's really messy to have a co-founder breakup. But that, that also leads to another, another tip and something that I shortcutted early on, which I won't ever do again, is the contracts. I shortcutted one of our early manufacturing contracts and it bit us in the butt after. So while no one loves to pay lawyers 400 bucks an hour, it sucks. You really have to, find, really have to hire good lawyers to do your contracts because you make one mistake on those and it can take down your company.
0: Mm
1: Mm-hmm. That's good advice. Yeah. I mean, it's hard as a bootstrap company or just a founder in general, where there's other places you'd rather be putting your money than in lawyer pockets. Um, It's probably one of the things you really just need to bite the bullet on.
2: Yeah. Cause it's really easy to ask a friend or a family member that like is a lawyer, but maybe not in that area to just draft a contract. And because it's free, But like, if there are very specific stipulations in there or terms that they don't include or they don't catch on the other party's contract, then it can destroy you. So, yeah.
1: So what's some final advice that you have for the listeners tuning in? And what can we expect next from Moku? I know you guys are focused on launching in retailers, which is really exciting. Any product innovations coming soon or flavors we should look out for?
2: Yeah. I'll start with some last advice. And that is you really have to just trust your instinct because there's so many times where there are big questions that you need to answer very quickly or directions, a direction that you need to take for your business. And there's not a lot of time and you can ask the people close to you, your advisors, your business partners, your family, your friends, and you're going to get advice that's all over the place. And at the end of the day, you take it all in from people you respect and look up to, but you have to look within and make the decision yourself and go with your gut, go with your instinct. And it's, it's easier said than done. And it sounds very simple. And it is simple. Like you, you really do have to just sleep on it. Like really go with your gut on things because you know what's best for yourself and your business. And even if at times advisors that you are much more experienced than you have, try to push you a certain way. If you don't feel comfortable with it, then go with your gut. So there have been so many moments like that where I've gone with other people's advice and it hasn't worked out. And I wish I went with my own and also vice versa. So you really have to choose who you you know ask advice from, but I think going with your gut is never a bad decision. So that's the last piece of advice I'd give. And in terms of Moku, we're, um, yeah, we're about to enter retail stores, talking with a lot of the bigger ones, but going to enter some some of the smaller natural gro- grocery chains to start. And then we're also launching three new flavors in August, Korean barbecue, lemon pepper, and Maui onion. And they're all insanely good, honestly, better than our current three flavors, even though these are, their current three are great. And then we're also launching a new product at the end of the year, which is, I won't mention it yet (laughs) because we're finishing development and I don't want to give a heads up to any competitors, but we're really excited about that. And, um, yeah, just like growing very quickly, entering new accounts and just like my role as the founder and CEO is just to, you know, make sure my team is motivated and continue meeting with high level people that will get us into new accounts or new investors and or press and all that. So it's been a fun journey, very up and down. (laughs) And I'd say like, compared to when I started it, you know, I've learned to detach myself emotionally from the business. So when things don't go well, I don't carry that with me as much as I used to, obviously it's hard not to carry it, but, um, I really try to treat the business like a facilitator and, and not carry that energy with me because the business is is its own entity. It can go in any direction. And if you carry that the whole time, you're not going to be able to live your life. So you got to stay level-headed.
1: Absolutely. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the show and sharing your awesome story. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lee.